Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. My name is Seyrun. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realize that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of The Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners, where there is a lot of bias in their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well, one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust the Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. The Guardian. How many of you? 13. Brilliant. Many people are coming. This system would allow you to recycle plastic back again properly 100% recycle 100% sustainable Dyer against Ospina he scores England have won the penalty shootout for the first time in a World Cup I'm really nervous for him he's, lo- he's looking at us I, I, I would be legitimately devastated if it fell every once in a while either his tail or his arm kind of hangs off the edge the drama of the rescue of the 12 members of the Wild Ball football team from a cave in northern Thailand last week had us all collectively holding our breath, hoping for the best, and flooded with relief as the boys and their coach were rescued on Tuesday night. It was such a brilliantly coordinated rescue and a triumph of all that is good in the world, and it really felt like such a strong counter-narrative to the toxic backdrop of geopolitics we're all living through right now. Hello and welcome to We Need to Talk About Positive News. This is the latest in our monthly podcast in which Guardian supporters set the agenda and our studio panel grapple with their questions and comments. I'm Lee Glendinning, Executive Editor for Membership at The Guardian, and I'm really pleased to be joining you today to talk about the importance of good news, heartening stories, and looking at things that just go right. The performance and integrity of the England football team as they made the semi-finals of the World Cup 
The news of the plastic-eating enzymes and the viral sensation that was the raccoon climbing up the top of the Minnesota skyscraper last month are all stories that lift the heart and can momentarily divert the mind and make us smile. But what is the purpose and meaning of positive news on a day-to-day basis and how important is it in the balance of what we take in and read each day? The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, promised in a speech on the future of The Guardian recently, we will develop ideas that help improve the world, not just critique it. Despair is just another form of denial. People long to feel hopeful again, and young people especially yearn to feel the hope that previous generations once had. Several supporters have written to us mirroring this sentiment and suggesting that we explore the impact of the modern news cycle on our health and well-being and asking whether a greater focus on positive, hopeful and light-hearted stories would help to mitigate this. Here's supporter Amanda Sherwood with her thoughts. I'm Amanda Sherwood from St Albans. We have now 24-hour global news, but the vast majority of it is bad news. And that's kind of in the nature of things because we need to hear when something bad happens because solutions need to be found or people need to be able to discuss it and react. But I kind of feel that we're not getting a balanced view. When people do get good news, they realise that there is such a thing as the goodness of human nature, even though bad things will always happen. Mentally, we can kind of try to be positive about things and not feel that it's all so awful. The only thing to do is give up or just withdraw into your own family or your own group where you feel safe and not to feel generosity towards people where they may be different, but actually, if you look at it a different way, you might find a lot in common. To discuss this and much more, I'm joined by Dr. Denise Baden, an associate professor within the University of Southampton Business School, whose research has looked into how people are affected by positive and negative news stories. Sean Daganwood, the publisher of Positive News, a current affairs magazine publishing independent journalism about progress and possibility. And Sean is the co-founder of the Constructive Journalism Project. Giselle Green, editor of Constructive Voices, a National Council for Voluntary Organisations project aimed at ensuring the positive impact of charities and social enterprises is heard and encouraging a more constructive, solution-based approach to news coverage in general. And finally, Mark Rice-Oxley, The Guardian's Head of Special Projects and Series Editor of The Upside, which is a project bringing together journalism that uncovers real solutions, people, movements and innovations offering answers to our most pressing problems. So Denise, let's start with your research. I'm interested in what you found about the effects of negative news. What led you to look at this particular issue and can you tell us what really interested you in the subject? Okay, well, my background's in psychology And what I know from social psychological theory is what affects behaviour is not just your attitudes about things, but what you think everyone else is doing. And also how likely, how competent you feel to put things right, something called perceived behavioural control or self-efficacy. And that led me to believe that theoretically, while negative and positive news would both raise positive attitudes towards trying to address the problems in society... Negative news might well create cynicism, where you think, no one's going to do anything right, and I will tend to behave like everyone else does. And it will also make people feel helpless, disempowered. Uh, Now, at the time, I was teaching business ethics to students, and I thought I'd do the cautionary tales, the ethics scandals, and then I thought, oh my God, am I doing it wrong? (laughs) And I ran some in-class experiments, and I found that when I showed them positive role models of ethical business, they gave rise to much more ethical intentions in the students than when I just showed them cautionary tales of um, 
ethics scandals. And so then I took that to look at positive and negative news. And yeah, it was interesting. People were exposed to both positive news stories about peace talks, about bumblebees coming back, about oceans being cleared up. And they were exposed to negative stories, the war in Syria, bumblebees being destroyed, problems in the oceans and so on. And an obvious finding was that, yes, people felt better after reading the positive news and you'd expect that. But the magnitude was quite amazing of the difference between positive and negative news. Negative news, they were about a 40% drop in women in particular in how they felt in depression, anxiety, worry. Um, but for me, the interesting thing is how does it affect people's motivations to make things a better place? Because interviews with journalists had led me to realise that a lot of them think we have to show the terrors of the world, the horrors of the world, so we can put things right. But what I found is the more negative people felt, the less likely they were to express intentions to be more environmentally friendly, donate to charity, lobby politicians, and in general make the world a better place. And they were much more likely to express those intentions when exposed to positive news than negative news. So that, for me, really raised the stakes for society as a whole of the way in which we present news. And as part of your research, you interviewed news editors and senior journalists yes. from Reuters, the BBC, Sky News and Al Jazeera to learn more about what they consider yes. news to be and how they made the decisions on what stories yeah. that they wanted to cover. Can you tell us what this told you about why historically negative news may have become so prevalent? Yes, a lot of interesting things emerged um, that explained it. One was that positive news had got associated with propaganda, and they went all the way back to the First World War, where journalists were kind of encouraged to play down the awfulness of the First World War. So that got associated with propaganda. Positive news is also associated with fluffiness, you know, with dog rescues, cat. <laughs> and I think it was seen as quite frivolous. Negative news was news in the minds of the journalists. There was no sense that a story about bumblebees coming back was as newsworthy as bumblebees being in danger. And what was interesting is when I was talking to the journalists was that they weren't necessarily deliberately ignoring the positive side. They had been trained to. Like, for example, you'd, I'd say, you know... Billions are coming back. Did you report that? Well, we talked about why they were disappearing, the pollution, the da, da, da. but they didn't even seem to hear <laughs> they were coming up. We talked about Ebola crisis. Well, did you report that actually it's been dealt with quite effectively? Do you know just how terrible Ebola is, the terrible things it does to your body? It's like it didn't even get there in the first place. So I, what came across is a very professional um, group of people who desperately want to do a good job, but probably blind to the biases in their own choices. And that came across quite strongly. Giselle, did you uh, want to pick up on something Denise was saying? Denise, it's interesting what you're saying about the way journalists are trained to think, because I remember my first job as a local radio journalist for BBC Radio Cambridgeshire about 30 years ago. And I remember my first task of the day on the early shift was to call up a special hotline for police, fire and ambulance and find out what had happened overnight. Like, you know, there'd been a, a collision in the town centre, a fire and a, a dustbin, you know, and write that up into news. And that's what constituted news. Um, so we're very much put on that train of thought to look about all the things that were going wrong. Obviously, those are quite trivial examples, but can, you can see how, as a, a cub journalist, your mindset was very much looking at the things that are going wrong.
There's been some interesting research done um, over the past year, first from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, which spoke to over 70,000 people in 36 countries across the world, and almost a third said that they sometimes or often avoid the news. And the top reason they gave was because it was having a negative effect on their mood. Other reasons were also that they couldn't rely on it to be true or they don't feel there's anything that they can do about it. Another survey from the Edelman Global Trust Barometer showed that a third of people admit to consuming less news than they used to, and a fifth saying they're avoiding it completely. And again, the top reason is because they find the news agenda too depressing. I was also actually going to come back and say there were a few other reasons, I think, that came through in my interviews with journalists that are quite legitimate reasons I'd say why news has tended towards the negative. One is the role of journalism in a functioning democracy to hold power to account and that was very strongly felt. The issue again though is you know if 99% of hospitals are doing well and one's doing badly it's only reporting the one doing badly giving a very misleading impression of where we are and creating a catalyst for change that perhaps we don't need. This brings us directly to the concept of truth versus perception, perhaps. And I'm interested that various Guardian supporters, including Joyce Bateman and Ijen McKay, have referred to cognitive scientist Stephen Pinker's statistics detailing the overall decrease in poverty and violence in the world today and how there are far fewer wars, uh, for instance, than there were in the 1950s and the 1980s and how the journalism that we do today should be accompanied by a bit of historical and statistical context to avoid our institutions being distorted by the news. Last week, The Guardian had a nice piece from Rochdale where they spoke to people who felt that Rochdale was always portrayed uh, as having this sinker state and there was never anything positive coming out from Rochdale. And the reality on the ground is very different. So the focus always on what's going wrong in a community can turn that community off and lead to a lack of trust in the media. Let's move on now and hear from Guardian supporter Sarah on what she feels should be the norm in news output and Ross on his use of positive news. I'm Sarah from Bristol. In the past, I actually had to stop listening and reading the news because I just found it so depressing and so distressing that I I didn't watch it for a couple of years. And then what really came over to me was, well, why don't news articles finish with something positive? Why don't we hear about an organisation that's doing something really great to tackle it? Or even better, what are the things that we can do? Quite often we listen to things and we feel so powerless and defeated and quite a lot of people think want to do something about it. If there was a little bit of hope of something that we could do to help change things in a little way, it'd be really encouraging. My name is Ross. I'm from Edinburgh. I'm a 27-year-old social researcher who has ADHD and anxiety. Having ADHD is not just an attention problem. It's also very difficult to motivate yourself So I created something called an affirmation wall, which is basically just a board that is on my bedroom wall and it's full of positive news stories. Usually the key theme that always goes along with this is that they are about overcoming adversity. So essentially I was using it as a a tool to change the way I thought about the world. I think the reason why a lot of people have anxiety problems, I'm not going to blame it entirely on the news, but I think that it's just too easy to see the news. It is always on repeat. You can access it through your computer. You can access it through your phone. You get notifications. I think that when you're of my generation, where you're kind of brought up in that, the smartphone generation, 
you're constantly connected to everything. That hyper connection is also a problem. I remember when I was at school, they used to talk about using a handset could maybe give you cancer. Now that we get to the point where it's like, yes, phones do actually change your brain. They do manipulate your brain. It's deliberately designed like that to hijack your dopamine system and your brain, your reward network, to keep you constantly wanting to check your phone. It's like an addiction to your smartphone and any of the content that that lets you see. Sean, I'm interested in hearing from you about the kind of information and feedback you get from readers at Positive News and the sorts of things they tell you about the impact of negative news on them and why positive news is so important. So, yeah, we get a lot of really um, passionate feedback in response to our journalism. And from my point of view, there's a, just a huge demand out there for a more constructive way of seeing the world and more of a balance in the media. Um, I actually think it's been you know, a really big elephant in the room in journalism for a long time. And I know that audience researchers have said for a long time that, that people want more good news. I think the issue has been about how to do it and how to do it well. So, yeah, our readers say that it really affects their lives. Um, getting more of a balance in, in the news they consume makes a really big difference, as Denise was talking about, to their well-being, to how much they feel that they can contribute in society, how much difference they can make. And that's whether that's in just in their own lives in terms of how much control or ability they have to make choices that actually make a difference in their own lives or in their communities or work. I've met readers who've told me that they've made life-changing decisions after reading things in our magazine, which is really humbling. Can you give us an example of one of those? Someone who said she'd read an article about, it was to do with environmental law, and she set up a new international network of environmental lawyers, and that became her passion. Yeah, so I think the ripple effects are significant. When we have so much information, and, and as your reader Ross mentioned, that it's, it's there all the time, and when so much of it's negative, what we hear from our readers is they want to find a way to stay informed, but without ending up feeling cynical or depressed. And, and, and some readers will only read positive news, and that's, that's their choice. It's not what we advocate. You know, we're, we're trying to offer a balance to help give a, a fuller, richer picture of what's going on in the world. And to me, that's really the next evolutionary step in journalism. When we talk about good journalism, and I think you mentioned earlier, Denise, how that's come from really wanting to be in service to democracy, you know, investigative journalism in particular, holding power to account. And that, of course, is and will remain essential. But I think now, with the the state of the world, the state of communications, that actually we have to go right back to the start and ask again, what is the purpose of journalism now today? How should it be done? What are the values that should be at the heart of that? And it's no longer good enough to just say the media just reflects society. And we've got decades of research of the impact of negative news. But now with the research revealing the difference that we can make when we take a more positive constructive approach i think we have to look at so how are we framing information what information are we selecting and is that really benefiting society or not mark i know this is also an issue that you feel really strongly about and have worked for years to make a difference uh, in the kinds of stories that we tell and the shape that they take can you talk to us a little bit about your work on the upside and what has driven you to um, put a huge focus on this kind of journalism Sure. Um, I mean, the upside started um, at the beginning of 2018, but this for me goes back a long way. And I've been trying to think, when was the light bulb moment? And actually, I think it goes back to the mid-noughties with a notorious um, US school shooting. I think it was Virginia Tech. 
And um, we had lots of discussions about how to cover that story, about whether we did it responsibly. We put the killer's face on the front page enormously. We had every last detail about his life and very little about the victim's. And recently I've been thinking about that. You know, say that say the killer had a, a schoolmate who who grew up in the same town as him but chose to uh, launch a social enterprise to bring um, health mobile health apps to southern Africa. Um, and we haven't written a word about him. Um, we've written all this stuff about the Virginia Tech shooter and then over the next 10, 15 years, hundreds and hundreds of copycats have followed suit um, we haven't caused that, but the, the information that we've propagated has informed that, that whole kind of atrocious movement in America. At the same time, we're not doing anything about the buddy who might have been doing something great. And it made me realise that we don't just reflect the world, we shape it, we influence it enormously. And if we're only covering bad people doing bad things, then we're only really going to encourage that kind of behaviour. And so I came to thinking, with the help of people like Giselle and others, that we have to do the other side as well. I've learned an awful lot from it. We haven't always got it right. There's a whole art to solutions journalism. It's not a single source story. It involves investigative work. It involves shoe leather. It involves nous. It involves multiple sources. They're actually harder to produce a good story in this vein than it is to produce a piece of a shock and awe, fear factor, traditional journalism. Mark, you've kind of moved the um, discussion on to constructive solutions journalism. And obviously, we were talking about positive news. So maybe it's something we need to kind of explore what the difference is. And um, I noticed when The Guardian was advertising this podcast, you accompanied it with a picture of the daredevil raccoon that scaled a 25-story building in Minnesota. So a lot of people associate that with positive news. And those kinds of stories are great. I love them. I love reading them. But that isn't what I would define as constructive or solutions or solutions focused news, which is a more rigorous attempt to look for solutions that have significance to society. And they look for evidence of what's working, but also what's not working. What are the limitations? Can this solution be scaled up? Can it be transferred to other areas? So that is what constructive or solutions-focused journalism is about. Our brand name, the publication, is Positive News, but we call our approach constructive journalism, which we define as rigorous and compelling reporting that focuses on progress, possibility and solutions. Um, It's about offering a different lens on the world where you can still find out important things going on, but just coming at them from a different angle, from a, a different starting point, asking the questions, so there's this problem, but what's being done about it? What are the positive responses or where is the potential for something to be done about it? Is something working in a different country around this issue where it's not working here, for example? Where can we learn from that? I think having a more rigorous underpinning makes it an easier sell to journalists because if they think it's all about raccoons and water skiing squirrels, you know, they're going to turn their noses up against it. I think we also need to make a distinction between content and framing. So the story might be about war, for example, but what aspects do you choose to look at? Do you look at people who've survived, who've been very brave, or do you just focus in on the the big deaths, the disasters? Um, So there's a content and framing issue, and there are little tips that sort of 
I've picked up along the way from reading some of the research and the psychological research is you can just look at what emotions are being created. So emotions such as elevation, which you feel when watching someone else do something good, um, can be incredibly inspiring and empowering. And emotions such as hope, those are the ones that I think the people writing in have mentioned a few times. And they can be inserted even in the most negative content type story. But it's also as well as not just reporting negative statistics, reporting positive statistics as well. So there's many different ways of approaching it. Looking for the positive deviant. Yeah. (laughs) So, for instance, um, BBC News um, recently did a report about the um, A&E crisis and waiting times. But rather than going to a hospital where um, things were really bad, they actually chose, I think it was Luton and Dunstable Hospital. And Hugh Pym, the BBC's health editor, went there and looked at why they were actually bucking the trend and able to reduce their A&E waiting times. So that was a great example of a traditional story that could be portrayed in a negative light, but actually he took a more constructive approach and found out what was going wrong and what they were doing about it to fix it. And isn't that much more useful than just you know going at it from the other way around? Because you imagine that hospitals up and down the country are reading that piece and thinking, we could do some of that. Um, we've had that response to several of our pieces. Um, the one that sticks in my mind is is actually one of the more frivolous pieces we did about repair shops. Um, sort of quite a 1970s idea, but we found that there's a kind of low-level movement for fixing stuff. Rather than just throwing away that toaster or that mower, um, go to a shop and get it fixed. And having published the piece, we had lots and lots of emails from people saying, I want to start a franchise for that shop in Devizes or in Belfast or in in Maryland, you know, I mean, properly international. And that made me think, you know, we've become part of the solution there. That's a great feeling. And the other advantage with solutions journalism is that it can hold government to account in a much stronger way because by highlighting how a problem could be solved, a problem that the government or or local council uh, were claiming is unavoidable becomes unacceptable if there are solutions out there. That's really interesting. How do you think this plays out uh, in relation to the competitiveness of the news agenda? Because when... Lots of news organisations are trying to have better stories than each other, exclusive scoops every week, every day, every hour sometimes in the way that the news, uh, the speed of the news. How, how does that impact on the ability to have positive and constructive stories within a news cycle? I think it's quite hard. I should be quite honest here. Um, it's not as if the whole Guardian newsroom has suddenly... Uh, walked into the sunlit uplands and everybody's smiling and happy and you know there is a lot of journalists who still don't quite believe this and argue quite forcefully against it there's still an absolutely unprecedented torrent of news it's a hugely competitive place just to publish our upside work amid all the other guardian output on a given day so um, you have to make sure your work is good I'm slightly wary. There are quite a few um, new movers, new um, operators in this space, and there's quite a lot of cut and paste. There's quite a lot of 200 words. You can't do an, you can't do a solutions-based story in 200 or even in 600 words. You need the space to cover all the dimensions and to say, actually, it might not work. You know, paving India's roads with plastic might not be such a great idea, but at least there's a guy who's trying it. So yeah, we're 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 at the um, we're in the foothills of this, and it's you know not always easy. It's interesting. I think the competitiveness has driven it because there's been a correlation between competition in the news sector and the increasing negativity 
in the news. And if I cared, if I was a news editor and I cared only about profit and nothing else, I'm not quite sure what position I would take because my research showed clearly that people had a stated preference for positive news. Probably about 45% said I prefer positive, 45% said I prefer a mix, and hardly any said they preferred negative news. But at the same time, when you look at the click behaviour, people tend to click on the most alarming information. And that's been well argued to be an evolutionary response. Being aware of threats on the environment clearly has an adaptive advantage. So if you come bearing the news, you know, you have value. And so I mean, I've noticed it myself when there's been some like, you know, person on telly going and then this happened and they're got an alarming voice it's hard to leave the room <laughs> think, oh what's that what's that so it does pull you in I'm, revi- I'm reminded of that great quote from the CBS chief executive Leslie Moonves on Trump's presidential run when he said it may not be good for America but it's damn good for CBS yes exactly and one of the reasons I, I've got a, a real problem with this is Yes, we might have evolved to pay attention to alarming or scary information, but we certainly, our little brains have not evolved to have the worst of the world's horrors condensed, bigged up to maximise the scare and alarm and presented to us constantly throughout the day. So I think there's no wonder we have mental health issues. So I think that changes it from a journalistic issue into a public health and an ethical issue. Traditionally, when there has been positive stories, um, they've they've I think they've been undermined by being um, you know put at the end of the news. Is is this kind of way to just after all that terrible news? Look, here's one good positive story, but the the placement of that just kind of undermines its um, its relevance and importance. So I think we're starting to open up space where there's more of an equal footing, and I'm I'm really seeing that change and openness in the industry. What Sarah was suggesting of um, having a, a con- what I would call a constructive element in a piece is a good first step. Definitely. So, for instance, um, you know, you're doing a piece on cutting reoffending rates. From my work with Constructive Voices, I know about a project uh, that Housing for Women run called Reunite, which houses women who've just been released from prison with their children, and that actually reduces the reoffending rate or a project by the Young Oasis Wellbeing Nail Bar who are targeting or reaching out to young women at danger of self-harm and uh, treating them in a beauty salon, giving them manicures and pedicures as a, a better environment for dealing with them. So, you know, you could add in a constructive element to a story, but I agree that could be a sort of a, a staging post towards exploring it in more depth but can I just go back to a a point that Mark made earlier about the difficulty of getting your constructive stories in the news or on on the agenda and I think this highlights the tension in news between drama and progress and because positive and negative news unfold on different timelines I think Stephen Pinker made this point very well recently he said bad things can happen quickly but good things aren't built in a day and as they unfold they'll be out of sync with the news cycle. So I think that's a big challenge we face, that progress is slow. So maybe we need slow news. <laughs> um, but the, your readers have pointed out two points. They haven't just talked about the inspirational qualities of positive news. They've also talked about how they felt in response to negative news and the anxiety. And so I think one of the things we need to do is perhaps be less tolerant of news that is deliberately packaged to alarm us. I had an interesting conversation with a journalist and he was saying um, I said how would you break the news of an air crash to someone you cared about 
And how different would that be to the way you'd present the news about an air crash to the entire population, you know, on radio for breakfast news? And yes, he had to admit it was very, very different. And I'd heard that broadcast and it had ruined my day. It literally invited you into the black box and how it must have felt to to basically face the most terrifying thing you can face. I did not want to be thinking about that over my breakfast. But what was interesting is that, again, going back to the journalistic training, he had been trained that the more negative you present it, the better you're doing your job. And that was not seen as an ethical issue. And I think so partly it's uh, perhaps just raising awareness a bit. Denise, you certainly wouldn't like to read some of the journalist requests that come in. For example, I'm looking for shocking real-life stories that haven't appeared in the national press before, or I want to find a young woman who might be able to share with readers her emotions on the moment she discovered she was terminally ill. I mean, do we really want to read about that kind of stuff? There's also a whole different, for me, a whole different subgenre of uh, negative news, which uh, I like to call could news. Not good news, but could news. So plane crashes, war, famine, pestilence, things actually happening obviously need to be reported. But uh, there's been a huge rise in the number of stories which say this could happen. It's fear factor news. And we see it in our environmental coverage. We see it in our politics. We we saw it writ large in the Brexit uh, referendum with both sides telling us, you know, Britain could be thrown back to the ninth century if we don't get our way, etc, etc. And that, for me, feeds, uh, and I'm probably I'm going to sound like an amateur psychologist here with Denise sitting next to me, but that feeds people's worries. And I've always felt that of all the courses of action open to any individual at any point, worry is probably the least appropriate and the most pointless. And yet we're just encouraging people to worry all the time. So let's, let's look at stories as editors. When we see the word could in the headline or the intro, let's really ask ourselves, what are we doing here? You're listening to We Need to Talk About the Power of Positive News Coverage. Coming up in the second half, how our addiction to technology affects our intake of negative news and how to broaden the reach and impact of constructive local news. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In this week's Books Podcast, we are exploring the very frontiers of knowledge. We speak to artist James Bridal about the dark side of technology. What does your shiny new smart fridge have on you? and to Professor Marcus de Sortoy about the concept of infinity and beyond. Tune in to this week's Books Podcast. I want to talk about technology because that's something that has a huge bearing on the subject we're talking about and the way that every day we're all taking in our news. We're hyper-connected 24 hours a day. We look at our phones the moment we wake up. 
just before we go to sleep. We're getting news alerts from around the world. Gone are the days where you'd publish in one country and wait a few days later to hear a story that had happened there. We hear immediately something that might happen in the United States, in the UK, in Australia, and so on. Uh, Psychologist Graham Davey refers to how we can't control our addiction to the internet, but rather it controls us. Now, this has a huge impact on our intake of negative news. How do you think we combat the bearing that technology has on our lives and our intake of negative information? Well, with every problem, there's a solution. It's easier now to design your own news input. So you can screen out, you know, you can have apps that will key you into some types of news, not others. If you feel that news is affecting your mental health, then you can still get access to the latest stuff, but perhaps screen out certain things that you don't want to hear about. We may, as you said, Denise, be attracted to the negative news, but the evidence also shows that maybe we'll be attracted to it, but the stories that we're sharing more are the positive ones. And I know Arianna Huffington of the Huffington Post has has made that point that it's the more positive solution stories that are the, are the shared much more widely on Facebook. I think that goes back to, Denise, your point on framing as well and the importance of that. And I'm interested in how we train younger journalists to make sure that the way they're looking at news or the way they're seeking out stories has a framing that could potentially bring some of the constructive elements and the positive elements that you're talking about. Training is absolutely crucial because I teach business ethics and in every other industry the ethical issues are clear. So if you're trying to introduce more sugar or fat into your food because you know people will eat it, you're not going to think you're doing an ethical thing. You'll know you're not, but you're doing it anyway and justifying it with profit. What really grabbed me talking to the news journalists is they were convinced the more negative it was, the better the news. There was The ethical issues were completely hidden. And like I said, I, they did not come across as an unprincipled set of people at all, quite the reverse. So I think it's bringing those ethical issues out into the open, uh, making them aware of some of the, the contagion of negative mood. So, I mean, do you remember that Facebook study where they put more negative content in posts and then more negative... Um, relationships developed and post developed and they put more positive in and then more positive interactions occurred and mood can be contagious and there's so much evidence supporting the fact that positive emotions enable us to be nicer to each other to be more proactive and negative emotions make us more helpless more passive more self-serving there's there's enough there we, we don't need to prove that point but we do need to make journalists aware of it so if they do decide and there will be competitive pressures to do so to foreground the most alarmist information they do at least know that is not ethical journalism yeah on technology i do agree with um denise and Giselle. um uh, and i want people to read you know our upside journalism on whatever on their tablets or their phones or whatever but actually i want them to put them down as well to switch them off you know i think that we're all getting too much information not enough intelligence intelligence is out there you know it's under blue skies it's on rivers it's in you know our cities and our our, our rural landscapes i want people to get the news have a dose of upside and then switch off and go and enjoy their lives it's a lovely thought on the point about training journalists you clan the university of central lancashire and preston have actually got a constructive journalism module in their course i think they're possibly the only ones at the moment but hopefully if we uh, continue um pushing for it we'll we'll get a uh, get a few more doing so that. Will, will they be studying us maybe excellent <laughs> 
Let's hear now from Guardian supporter Matthew Phipps with his thoughts on the potential of local news. My name is Matthew Phipps. I'm from Cardiff. I know of a cafe that's recently opened in Cardiff. There is a poster up in their premises that says leaving the world better than we found it or words to that effect. They have put on mini triathlons for disabled kids. They have been involved in a feeding the homeless program, collecting and distributing food from cafes and restaurants in Cardiff. They have a program where vulnerable people are offered opportunities, whether in the kitchen, whether front of house. And I thought there was something interesting to be thought about in the context of commercial businesses backed by commerce doing things that are necessary in moral, ethical, do-gooding world that perhaps the government isn't attending to in a time of austerity. When we spoke to Matthew, he referenced that there can sometimes be a derogatory perception of local news, uh, that it was deemed to be of limited appeal or parochial or even mundane. How do you think we can broaden the appeal of local stories like this and bring them to a national or international audience? There's so many great social enterprises, community groups and organisations doing stuff on the ground that inspire local people and beyond. In uh, an issue we ran a couple of months ago, we had a cover story um, which we headlined People versus Plastic. And we were picking up all around the UK and elsewhere on how people were tackling plastic waste. It's become such a big issue and there's this real big shift around doing something about it. But uh, our cover stars were two people who set up the UK's first zero waste shop. So we used them as the way into the story to really make it tangible to people and then looked at where else is this happening. There's, there's a few more being set up in other places in the UK now. And so we really tried to ground the story, this big story about plastic waste, a global issue, in these really nice examples in local communities of where change is happening. I think one of the keys to what we do with our journalism is looking for those little instances of positive change, not overlooking them. Not needing to see that massive drama instantly, but thinking, actually, this is the seed of something really good. And then you'll find, you know, years later, we'll run a story and it's turned into some, you know, kind of network or global movement of change. And it all started with a local story. So it's trying to f- connect the dots between those local stories and the biggest significance um, where I think uh, there's, there's real value. Yeah, I completely agree. I look at some of our more popular pieces over the last six months, you know, the, the plastic clear ups, the community gardening projects. Um, our delightful tale of the only Syrian family in a village in Wales um, and the fix-it shops that I've mentioned already. All of these quintessentially local stories, but with with national and international kind of relevance, resonance and feedback from people saying, I like what's going on in that local space. I want to do it in my space as well. I mean, a great example of that was when Positive News reported about the Library of Things. It's in South London, isn't it? Yeah, Bristol. That's a wonderful idea. It's an idea that I've been thinking we should do for years it's why do we all have drills and tools in our sheds and camping gear in our attics and pressure cookers in the back of our cupboards that we might use once or twice a year why does not every local community have a library of stuff of everything that you use a few times a year and you can just borrow it bring it back borrow it bring it back it seemed like a much better less resource intensive model that increases equity provides resilience community focus ticks every single box and I was so delighted to hear about that and I thought we need one in Southampton. (laughs) NCVO has almost 14,000 members from right from you know big household 
name charities down to very small community groups and what we're trying to do is find those stories at the grassroots of how they're making a positive change for people's lives. We had a a great story of a social enterprise called Playing Out um, who basically encourage street play, getting children out on the streets and helping groups to apply to the council to close close down the roads and we actually helped them get media coverage and one of the pieces of coverage ended up with a a BBC uh, video which I've been told has had over 10 million views and the founder uh, of Playing Out said that because of that coverage it's meant it's raised huge awareness of this great scheme and also they've had a lot more inquiries from local councils who are interested in street play and wanting to um, put that into practice so you know you get the you find a story you get some coverage and then the impact of that is great to see Mm. I also wanted to ask you uh, about something that I think is an overarching theme across a lot of things we're talking about today which is autonomy and the idea that the individual can make up their own mind what they want to read, be self-selecting enough to potentially screen out negative stories as we've discussed. And I wonder really at this point in 2018 how much we should be asking about the level of dependence that people have on other news organisations or um, other sort of bodies to be screening out what they should and shouldn't see. And we've talked a lot about the responsibility to frame things in a positive way and to make sure that we are involved in constructive journalism projects whether that be from perception level a research level an impact level but where does autonomy sit in all of this Denise well autonomy is a tricky thing for a psychologist because one of the things that you know is that we're born so immature we're not born hardwired uh, to do things or think things or behave in certain ways so we're massively flexible but we're also massively dependent on everyone around us to care for us And we only succeed as a species because we're social and cooperate. So naturally, we get our opinions from the world around us, from the environment around us. We don't just decide in a vacuum, oh, I'm going to think this or do that. We're massively influenced. And it's because of that we're also very vulnerable. And we need to be able to trust the sources around us to give us an accurate view. So that's why I think trust in the media is massively important. They need to earn that trust. They need to regain that trust. And it's not just about fake news. It's about balanced news and presenting a picture of a world that we recognise and can bear to live in and want to feel part of. And on that note, what would you say is the biggest opposition in the next five to ten years as we start to imagine this level of of change in the media landscape? What is standing in the way and what should be our key focus as to how to have more positive and constructive news in what we're publishing and what we're reading? Volume of information is one of the the biggest challenges because it's just increasing exponentially and the default position is for news to still be critical, negative. Um, And so trying to cut through that, I think, is a major challenge. Finance is obviously a big challenge. We spoke, I spoke earlier about the fact that this kind of journalism needs just as much investment, if not more, per piece than traditional news stories. Now, that investment may not be forthcoming because, of course, we've been in a a media sort of winter for for years and years and it doesn't look like it's going to get 
any easier. But I do think that there's a generational issue at play here. I think that negative news, um, disaster news, could news is very much a kind of baby boomer Gen X thing. I think millennials are different. And then the generation I'm raising at home, Gen Z, whatever you want to call them, are different again. And I think Sean's already touched on this. You know, they don't want to hear about how everything's like completely crap they want more optimistic stuff they want to feel good about their lives and their future and i think that the the training courses that you're getting in journalism schools the more and more that this issue sort of becomes apparent and obvious to um, our future journalists i think will keep the wind in our sails and we shall overcome we need to make a a good strong business case for constructive journalism and show you know quite categorically that this is something that audiences do want so we need more and more evidence there is evidence already out there but more as much as we can get from things like the upside showing that this is what readers want and also big things happen when you can get individuals on board and speaking to journalists who I have managed to convince to do a more solutions focused stories they've come back and actually said how much they enjoyed it and what a refreshing change it made from the normal type of story they were covering. I think it's an important point the way the type of journalism we do affects the people producing it as well. Absolutely. Um, when, when we're doing training we ask people why have you come here and why did you become a journalist and, and what's caused you to question what you're doing and it, we hear a very common story of I got into it because I wanted to do something positive through my work and not necessarily that meaning create positive stories but being a journalist is a positive role in society but it, it's having a negative impact on myself and that's causing a disharmony and I'm, I'm trying to work out what to do about that. I think a driving force in journalism can often be to bring about change and mm. somehow we do get in this spiral of reporting on negativity so often that the change can only come back to Denise's point about holding power to account in a negative way so it's really interesting what you say There's such a strong identity around being a journalist and the role of the media that I think that cultural change will take time um, and, and rightfully so sometimes when we talk to journalists about this the scepticism you know it's a good trait to have as a journalist to be sceptical um, but I think the younger generations will step into it quicker um, new journalists will step into it quicker we see a rapidly increasing amount of students getting in touch with us doing PhDs or theses um, around this this subject the challenge will probably be with people higher up in news organizations where maybe there's more risk for them but there's also a stronger embedded identity and culture having spoken to a lot of journalists and, and knowing a lot of very high level journalists myself I've got a very positive news story a good friend of mine in Reuters newsroom noticed how many journalists were suffering from basically post-traumatic stress from being at the heart of conflict, constantly having to view videos that were too harsh to ever send out. And she was suffering from it herself. And so she decided to become an activist for this and thought, well, rather than getting rid of them because they can no longer function, we ought to set up a peer support mechanism so we can look out for each other, prevent it happening before it does you know, count, provide counselling and treatment. And she's run that all the way through and across internationally and now gads around the globe trying to set up peer counselling systems to help protect journalists from this. I thought that's a really good story of how you can see a problem and if you want to put it right, you know, you put your shoulder to the wheel and, and you make it happen. But I also wanted to speak to a point that, that Mark made about the next generation because I've got sons and... Um, what really worries me 
is the lack of critical thinking now. News is under such pressure now, journalism with social media and self-appointed experts. I mean, the financial pressures are enormous to compete with that. It would be a shame if they tried to compete with that by tapping into our evolutionary urge to pay attention to alarming information. I think that would be a very short-term view. What we need is more critical thinking and trust in an all-round balanced truth that, that isn't just puffery, isn't just self-appointed experts, to counter the YouTube generation who think anyone on there who speaks knowingly in an American accent usually about things must know more than any amount of academic research. Not that I've got a beef with it, but I have. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we've invited uh, some of our supporters and members to share some really positive stories that they have read that have affected them. So let's hear now from Amanda, Paul, Sarah and Mary. The boys and their coach trapped in the cave in Thailand. That has been an absolutely amazing thing of people all from around the world coming together to come up with a solution of quite a sensitive way of treating the boys. And nobody's trying to blame anybody for anything. Lots of people have done that before, probably, and come out with no problems at all. So the focus has been on the positive of how to get them out. And amazingly, it seems to have been successful. My name is Paul Davis. I live in southwest France. Uh, from the limits to growth and the views on resource depletion to the cataclysm of climate change. Darkness has covered my vision of the future. Stories in The Guardian last year, for example, are beginning to paint a quite different picture. In uh, 2017, the Scottish government was not only achieving its targets, but achieving them uh, significantly early and was then beginning to consider how to ratchet things up even farther towards carbon neutrality. That change in ambition has taken me wholly by surprise, truly a, a cause for hope on a subject that I had virtually despaired of. After the Grenfell fire, where people were so shocked and appalled by what had happened, what was wonderful was to see how many people from all walks of life came by to kind of help the community. And I think it just really reassured people and restored people's faith in human nature that people are just generally good and people really want to help and make a difference. I'm Mary Markin and I'm based in Sheffield. It wasn't a new story, but it was new to me. It was about a Turkish man who had moved to West Germany around the time that they built the Berlin Wall. And there was a little bit of a gap near where he lived between that and the official border. And he took the opportunity and created a garden in this little space overlooked by the East Berlin guards. Grew onions, grew vegetables for his family and formed a relationship with the guards and kept that going uh, throughout um, the whole period when the Berlin Wall um, was in operation. And I thought it was a, a great story about uh, someone just seeing an opportunity and, and having a need to do something that was life-affirming to him and just going for it in a way that meant that he could develop relationships with the people around him. I'd like to thank the panel, Dr. Denise Baden, Giselle Green, Sean Dagenwood, and our own Mark Rice-Oxley, and of course, all of the Guardian supporters and members who've provided our questions and shared their thoughts. Do keep an eye out for the next podcast call-out in a couple of weeks, and if you'd like to email us with your thoughts on what we should tackle next, we'd love to hear from you at weneedtotalkabout at theguardian.com. 
I've been Lee Glendening and We Need to Talk About Positive News was produced by Stuart Silver. Until next month, goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.